Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hi, from Vienna, and welcome to Lung Cancer Consider, the official ISLC podcast. We're going over uh, today's highlights of the World Conference on Lung Cancer uh, 2022. We're joined by a stellar panel of guests. I'm your co-host, Dr. Stephen Liu from Georgetown University. And I'm Dr. Narjos Flores from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School. We had the pleasure to have Dr. Belinda King-Kalemanes, the Director of Patient Focused Research at Longevity Foundation. She presented a very important study about informed consent and clinical trials. Dr. King Kalamanis, could you summarize uh, some of the results of the first part of the study? Yes, absolutely. So uh, we presented the first two phases of a multi-phase project, so we still have a couple of others to go. But the first two phases were to review um, a set of 20 informed consent forms, against the um, Code of Federal Regulation requirements to see exactly how that really critical information is being presented to patients. Then we spoke to patients, we gave them a hypothetical informed consent form and asked them which pieces of information would be really critical to them to make a truly informed decision when deciding whether to participate in a clinical trial. And then plan to use what they said to create an addendum to the informed consent form because we all know that there's legalities and challenges in changing the actual informed consent form, unfortunately. And so that's what we presented our work on yesterday. Something that really caught my attention is very commonly was the lengthy of the the length of the consent, over 21 pages. I have to say that's more than a manuscript with references. So. What are some of the things that through this study you learned that could be summarized in the addendum to try to deal with that length that a lot of it is required for legal reasons? Right. So side effects is a really good example, right? There's often a couple of pages dedicated to describing potential side effects. And so patients told us they don't need to see all of those, especially the ones that are less likely to happen to them. They might be rare and important, but they really need to be aware of the ones that they should be on the lookout for if they're on a clinical trial, but that if we could also put the page number on the one page or two page of trifold that says, find the rest of these on page 10, so you're not flipping through looking for that information in dense text. So that was one suggestion of how to sort of shorten things. And I think that's also important because we help them remember, because when you have so much information, it's likely for you to remember. One thing that also caught my attention is a comment about some patients signing because that was the only treatment option. So I wonder, it makes me wonder, is that true informed consent? What was the experience about those patients that commented that they just signed it? Yeah, I mean, I, it happens, right? And I mean, even in all of our lives, we sign forms we don't understand fully. I signed a mortgage, de- mortgage a year ago and I struggled to understand what was in the mortgage. But that has financial implications. But for patients, this is their life. This is their health. That's another level. And they're signing these forms and they're not 100% sure what will happen and particularly what will happen when, if this treatment doesn't work for them, what happens to them next after that? That information's not described at all. 
Um, and one thing I think is relevant, we continue to talk about the lack of representations of minorities, Hispanics, black, and women, as well as all the adults in clinical trials. So, you know, this study is very important to understand how we can improve the consent, because sometimes, in my own experience, some patients, older adults, see, they actually weigh the consent when I give it to them, and I printed both sides of the page, and they weighed it, and they're like, so what is the other option? I have one patient who told me that, like, this is so big. Do you think modifying consent will improve this issue that we continue to talk about? I hope so. I mean, it's not the form in of itself, right? Like, it's an entire process. And so who does the informed consent? Who introduces the trial? Those things also matter. Um, I think, though, having a one- to two-pager or a short video or a mix of things because everybody receives and interprets information differently so that there are options for folks. I prefer to watch a video or I prefer to read a piece of paper and you can choose for yourself would help. But I do think that this is one um, little piece of a much larger problem. But I agree with you. We do need to find ways to make these more welcoming to other folks to participate. Linda, I, I think it's such an important issue we don't talk about quite enough, and it's compounded because we often have to re-consent people many times over the course of the study, and the consents get more and more complex. Uh, this was focused on U.S. patients, correct? We spoke to U.S. patients only, but half the trials were global, and some of the informed consent forms we did review had information that was in the informed consent form for if you were in a different country or if you were in the U.S., and we did focus mostly on the U.S. because it's you've got to start somewhere, right? So um, but I think exploring how this works globally is important too. Yeah, especially in, in some countries like, like Switzerland where there are many languages spoken at once and do these always align properly? I think that the takeaway point for me was really that we just need to put a lot more thought into the informed consent. A lot of it admittedly is a little boilerplate and um, maybe we don't put enough intention into it. Companies have their templates, right? And so they plug and play the pieces, but um, they can also work on making those. And there are companies that are working on making them more friendly. But, you know, as we go went back to the legal part becomes a challenge. So, but, you know, there's still, there's lots of room for improvement here in lots of different ways. So uh, important ongoing work. And we'll uh, encourage everyone to go and listen to the full presentation on the WCLC virtual Library. We're also joined by uh, Dr. Charles Rudin, the chief of thoracic oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, U.S., who presented some updates uh, with longer-term follow-up from Keynote 604. Uh, Charlie, thanks for joining us. Would you remind us uh, a little bit about this study? Sure. The Keynote 604 trial was a study that was conducted for patients with newly diagnosed extensive stage small cell lung cancer. Most of our small cell lung cancer patients present with metastatic disease. So this is applicable to a large fraction of the patients. This trial looked at chemotherapy with or without the addition of the immunotherapy pembrolizumab. Uh, and the trial showed a substantial advantage in terms of progression-free survival, but not meeting its endpoint for overall survival. What this update provided us with was a long-term view of how those patients did, uh, including after they completed the study therapy. So the study was designed so that they would receive up to two years of either pembrolizumab or placebo and then be followed. Uh, and what was interesting, with three and a half years of follow-up, there are real patients in the tail of the curve that were on the pembrolizumab that remain progression-free 
three and a half, four years later. Uh, so that's telling us something new uh, about the benefit of immunotherapy, that there may be durability uh, in a subset of patients with small cell lung cancer. You know, as oncologists, I think when we sit down with our patients for the first time, we often give them a pretty tough reality check that, you know, they're facing a tough disease. And for patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer, that initial message was, uh, you know, you really have a terminal illness that we cannot cure. Uh, and, and I think that message is now wrong, actually, <laughs> that, that there is an opportunity for hope here and that with the advent of some of the newer therapies, this remains a highly lethal disease, but there are long-term survivors and, and there's uh, reason to be hopeful. And it's something to build on. Absolutely agree. This was really uh, inspiring work to see that that tale there. A question for you on Keynote 604, treatment was for two years. Our approved therapies in the U.S. Um, and EMA are atezolizumab and drivalimab based on Power 133 and Caspian. The treatment there is indefinite. Do these results sort of give you any pause in wondering if we need to continue that treatment indefinitely? It does, but we really don't know the answer to that. How long do we need to treat? Does it help to keep treating? After two years, is there still benefit? I certainly have patients who are continuing immunotherapy because they've benefited. They don't want to stop. They're not having much toxicity. And it's their life. Uh, you know, um, I think this trial does tell us it may be safe to stop. And I think if patients are having significant adverse effects, it does give some reassurance that... Uh, stopping doesn't mean that their disease is going to come raging back. Some of the patients did have recurrence after stopping, and those recurrences uh, for, the, for the most patients were what we would call oligo-progressive disease, and, and many of them were treated with focal radiation. Fourteen of the 18 patients who completed the two years of pembrolizumab uh, remain alive. Remarkable last question. Can you tell us up front, when you see them in the clinic, who those patients are? I wish we could do that, Steve. And we don't know the answer to that. I think um, what we found was there really weren't clinical predictors of, of who's in that group that are, that are really the long-term benefiters. There's a lot of biomarker analysis that's currently in progress, and we really hope to learn a lot more about the patients who derive durable benefit from immunotherapy with small cell lung cancer. Again, it is a small minority, but a really important subset uh, that we need to understand. And we need to apply the lessons from that small population to see if there are strategies that could be applied to the broader population of patients with small cell. Thank you. And I have a question about retention, because in order to be able to have this data 3.5 years later, retention of patients to follow up after this remains important, particularly when some of them are off the therapy. What are some of the lessons that you learned that you were able to keep those patients in follow-up, 14, uh, through 3.5 years? It's a great question, because often we do studies, and when the study ends, we just stop collecting data. But I think looking at the outcome from the patients who were on the trial after they've completed the trial's prescribed therapy is really can be very informative. Again, this is a statistically negative trial. This is not one that's going to get an FDA registration. But we can learn a lot still from the patients who committed to participate in that study. 
And another question is the value of publishing negative trials. I think we often forget that. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Ajay, would say it needs to be published. And that's how we publish a phase one trial after eight submissions. So how, for you as investigator, how important is to get studies, even if they don't have that very fancy p-value or hazard ratio? Again, a great question. I think, you know, we learn from our negative trials. Um, there's a, an infinite number of paths one could take in clinical research, and you learn the right path by going down some dead ends. <laughs> and, and the patients who commit to a trial that ends up being a negative trial still participate and, and actively contribute to our knowledge base about how to better treat the disease. It tells us that that's not the right path, and, and that then we need to go down a different one. And you know, earlier this year at, at ASCO, I presented the data on the TIGIT trial, which was stone cold negative in small cell lung cancer, and that was very disappointing and, and really sad. Um, but again, we learn by knowing that that's not the right strategy for small cell lung cancer. We can put that one, we can check that one off and we can focus on other pathways that we think are going to be relevant for these patients. And I want to thank you for your persistence because that's also important as trials are negative and I think publishing negative trials allows investigators around the world not to run the same trial or, you know, try to do a, a different combination of the same drug that hasn't worked. Thank you so much, Dr. Rodden. It's also my true pleasure to introduce Dr. Professor Solange Peters. She's the Chair of Medical Oncology at Lausanne University and also the current ESMO President. Thank you, Dr. Peters, for coming. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Peters reported results of the Poseidon trial, particularly in the KRAS is CK11 uh, mutation. Uh, Dr. Peters, could you summarize some of the findings you shared with us? Yes, it was a pleasure. It's quite interesting to see that some of the strategies looking at immunotherapy for uh, advanced non-small cell lung cancer uh, have shown benefit in PFS, in overall survival, uh, in the patient population enrolled in the study. That's the case for Poseidon, looking at uh, the complex arm of four-drug regimen, three strategies together, tremelimumab, an anti-CTLA-4, dirvalumab, an anti-PDL-1, and platinum-based chemo. This was showing an overall survival and a PFS benefit in these patients compared to uh, standard chemotherapy. But we start to learn across all of these trials that the benefit we see is unfortunately not for all, but restricted to small subsets. And on the other way around, thinking differently, that some patients we treat with these combinations do not benefit. So the, the effort we made here was to try in Poseidon to identify, of course, the patients benefiting, but also looking at these subgroups of patients, which we have identified in all the ongoing trials as being the patients with a poor outcome. So typically, SDK11 and KEEP1 mutated patients, first of all, have a terribly bad prognosis. It was shown by Charlie's Rooding a long time ago. Uh, but really a bad prognosis, and worse than that, they don't benefit from immunotherapy. They don't benefit because they probably have something what we call a cold tumor, so a tumor which is poorly responsive for many parameters to immunotherapy. So we looked at this subgroup, KIP1 and STK11, because usually we know they are not the good benefiters, the good players in this trial. The third subgroup we looked at is KRAS mutants, because first of all, very often they have co-occurring mutation with STK11 and KIP1, 
and also because their existence as being oncogene addicted in a field where we don't like to give IO to oncogene addiction has also posed the question of what about Keras? Is it a subtype which differs differently from the other one? So what is interesting in the results of this analysis, again, are looking at tremolimab, durvalimab, and chemo versus chemo in STK11, KIP1, and KRAS, was to find that we could reproduce, with smaller sample size, of course, the benefits of tremolimab, durvalimab, and chemo, which was observed in the whole population. So, of course, it's exploratory, but it shows like it can maybe rescue this group of patients who usually benefit uh, stringently less than the other one from the treatment, STK11 and KIP1, and we could confirm maybe that Keras mutant patients are highly sensitive to immunotherapy and they do benefit very, very importantly for, from this combination. Maybe focusing on Keras, what really made me think about a CTLA-4, again, it's not easy to give, huh, to these patients in addition to the standard of care, was that the quality of the response, of course, the response rate, but also how deep is the response and how durable it is, was really something which was shown different when you have or not a CTLA-4 component. So there's really something here to learn. It's a, a hypothesis generating. But at least it gives, paves the way to some treatment opportunities for these STK11 patients, which is to me important. I think for me, it brings another phase of precision oncology, because we're often focused on what drug we have for what mutation, but now their co-mutation is getting deeper. And it brings attention why NGS, as we repeat in this podcast, I think almost every episode is so important. So Dr. Peters, for these co-mutations, for the, our listeners, how important is for them to know and to plan ahead with these patients that may have SDK11 uh, co-mutations with KRAS? So it's more and more important. I think the fact that we are really deep diving into precision oncology makes this mandatory uh, panels of genes to be known initially when you start to treat the, the patient kind of, of a must-have, a must right? And we know in the U.S. and in Europe that it's far from being the case, right, uh, across centers in U.S. and across countries in Europe. So really needs to advocate for these panels of genes to be available early enough in the course of the treatment decision but also the STK11, keep one Keras, of course, to be part of it. I'm telling that because when you ask the colleagues, do you have STK11 in your panel? Most know the answer. It's called STK11, KB1. But about keep one, I asked some of my colleagues, half of them have not a clue. They say yes, or some say yes, probably. So it's important to, to think about what might be useful in creating granularity in your decision because it's not black and white. It's just about all the nuance you can give to a treatment, the art of oncology. And to really be in this art of oncology that at least I think we all can do just about learning and seeing patients and observing them, uh, we need to have these molecular features in hand, right? So this must be a service that the society gives us in order to make our job. Thank you. Solange, I think these are really important findings. Are these mutations only present de novo or can you acquire these through the course of your treatment? Well, we have very, um, very few data about it, uh, knowing if, uh, I would say, sequential biopsies to see if they would be variable in their presence or absence. At least we know that Keras is a driver. So you're not supposed to consider it heterogeneous and not supposed to consider this will appear or disappear. It's probably the case, too, for STK11 and KIP1, which play a role in the oncogenic pathway leading to the cancer phenotype. So I would say you can be confident, it's to go back to the service that we want to, you can be confident to use any sample you have to assess. You don't need to re-biopsy. That's a simple biomarker as compared to others, right? 
the, the curves I think are very interesting, but the numbers are a little on the smaller side um, because they aren't sure. so common to find these. Do you think that these data warrant a shift in practice or at least consideration, or do these warrant a prospective study? Is that is that something that's even feasible? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm strongly attached to evidence-based medicine, right? Because everything we do without evidence has a cost, a cost for the patient, but a cost also for the society. So they are not sufficient to put them in the guidelines, right? Uh, what we write uh, very often. However, they would be very small sample size if they were not supported by previous data showing the same thing. We speak about CTLA-4. Remember the same subgroups were showing benefit from having a CTLA-4 component in 9LA, in 227, the trial with EP Nivel. And I was going back to the old days. We had the same in the Mystic trial, which we all forgot about. And we had the same in the Neptune trial. So basically, if you go back, you see this consistent idea that by having the complex dual immunotherapy, maybe you can rescue some subgroups, at least this one. But of course, having some prospective assessment doesn't need to be a fully randomized phase three, but something which at least is balancing some characteristics of patients prospectively, even a large phase two, is needed. And we are pushing the pharma industry to do it, and I hope it's going to be done. I have good hopes that uh, these subgroups of patients will be studied prospectively too. Look forward to that. Um, Narjus, while I have you here, I'd love to sort of ask you to talk a little bit about the work that you presented today. Um, you gave us an update on the Shawl study. Can you tell our listeners what that was about? There's always a first in which the host asks the other host about their studies, and this is where we are today. So the Shawl study is an international cross-sectional uh, survey study evaluating the prevalence of sexual dysfunction um, in women with lung cancer. It is the largest study about sexual health in women with lung cancer to date. And it was in conducted in conjunction with the GoTo Foundation. What we found sovereign in the results is that 77% of the study participants had moderate to severe sexual dysfunction. And I think for some of our listeners, is what that means, severe to moderate. What it means is affecting their activities of daily living, that the patients think about sexual health or the lack of daily or almost daily, and it has been associated, always highly associated with depression and non mental health issues. So summarized, 77% of the respondents have moderate to severe sexual dysfunction in the study. Just, this was a, a pretty eye-opening study, um, but thinking as an oncologist and the training we receive, I think that a lot of our colleagues may not be comfortable or well-trained to sort of address these topics. Do you have any advice or comments on that? I think the first thing is to talk about it. If we continue to say that we're not trained enough, it will remain in a little box in a corner in which patients feel like it is not okay to ask their oncologists about sexual health. So let's talk about it. Let's use words that they describe it. I think um, since the beginning of the study, even my own comfort level mentioned vaginal dryness and a 6 a.m. meeting has increased um, because I wasn't trained on it. I didn't receive no training, and the study was motivated by a patient. I had a patient that had axillary excoriations, and I asked her, and I was about to blame it, and also Mertinib, until she broke down and told me that she was having axillary sexual activity with her husband because the vaginal dryness was significant, that she was having postcoital bleeding, and the mouth dryness was so severe that she couldn't do oral sex. So the AMPED was the solution. So that motivated this study, and this patient, I get her updates, 
about this study as we continue because she's the source of what motivated this. So I think the first thing is to know it's an issue, that you don't have to provide the solutions, but it's all role to us. We can refer to sexual counselors, therapists, psychologists, and sometimes just the referral to the sexual counselor, and the sexual counselors can do referral to other disciplines we in sexual health. Nargis, this was a U.S.-based survey, is that right? We have uh, patients in 10 different countries mm. that responded to the survey. The majority of their patients were U.S.-based. But something that I really love about this study is we have patients in every single state of the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, we have respondents. So the sampling was uniform around the country. And why is this important? Because sexual health is linked to cultural belief and healthcare beliefs. So for some patients, what they may find a sexual dysfunction may be very different to other patients. And one last question. Are there any cultural barriers, either in the U.S. or outside the U.S., that we need to be aware of when, when asking these questions? Sexual health for women has been a taboo since the beginning of times. Um, the female, um, not reproductive organs, but the female genital organs, we know dissected thousands of years compared to the male. So we have a gap of knowledge about women's sexuality, and there's a lot of taboo with women's sexuality since I don't know how many thousands of years that was Lady Ring first. So there's a lot of taboo, and sometimes it's linked to religion in which women's pleasure and women's sexual health is not adequate and it should be only for reproduction. So there's a lot of cultural barriers. I'm from Latin America. Sexual health is something that's not spoke freely. So I think we need to remove those barriers because sexual dysfunction is associated with depression, higher symptoms burden, isolation, partners issues, and a sense of this is the price I need to pay to be alive with lung cancer. And that's not true. Many, I can tell you how some of these sexual dysfunction issues are easier to uh, fix compared to what I thought. I thought there were gonna be these big issues and a bottle of lubricant can go a long way for some of our patients. Well, it's great to, to hear a lot of work being done in some very important fields, a wide range of data to go over at World Lung. I encourage all of our listeners to uh, log on to IASLC.org and go to the WCLC link to participate in the meeting virtually and watch on-demand videos of all of the latest and greatest updates in the field of thoracic malignancies. I want to thank uh, all of our guests, uh, Dr. Solange Peters, uh, Dr. Belinda King-Kalamanis, and Dr. Charlie Rudin for taking time from their WCLC to join us. This has been Lung Cancer Considered with Dr. Stephen Liu. And this is Dr. Narajas Flores. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.